Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Ashman family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Ashman family JCC empowers you to experience Jewish paths toward a life of joy, purpose, and meaning through innovative Jewish learning and wellness programs, community building, and initiatives to develop the next generation of Jewish leaders. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 368, Progressive Hasidism. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. And now we have rounded the curve into the home stretch of this series on spirituality, which I personally am finding quite transformational in my thinking. And I'm really looking forward to the conversation that Lex and I are going to have in a couple of weeks, looking back on this whole series. But this week and next week, we are exploring Hasidism. Now, a lot of us think that Hasidism is a form of orthodoxy, and that is sort of true. Although when Hasidism emerged, there really was pretty much only some pre-denominational form of Judaism, and Hasidism emerged from that. But things could have gone in different directions, and Hasidism did end up generally getting folded back into what we now call orthodoxy. But It could have gone in a different direction, and there are a lot of folks today working on what might it look like if the ideas of Hasidism were folded into a more progressive form of Judaism. So this week and next week, we're going to be talking to some amazing thinkers and doers about neo-Hasidism, which is basically taking these Hasidic ideas and bringing them into a more progressive form of Judaism. Our guests today are the founders of a new online magazine called Gashmius. Gashmius magazine hopes to create a platform for non-hierarchical Judaism that is rooted in, but not confined to, Hasidic sources and teachings, and to make the wealth of Jewish mystical spirituality accessible to anyone who might find it meaningful. Gashmius publishes essays, as well as all kinds of other forms of writing and art, manifestos, poetry, visual art, interviews, reviews. It's not just scholarship for the sake of scholarship, but they say its purpose is to make the wealth of Jewish mystical spirituality and discourse accessible to whoever might find it transformative. Gashmius is committed to a heterodox, non-hierarchical, and God-obsessed, we'll talk about that, Judaism that is rooted but not confined to Hasidic sources and teachings. The first volume of Gashmius includes articles by a number of our previous guests, including Jericho Vincent, David Seidenberg, Lainey Solomon, Jake Marmer, and next week's guest, Ariel Evan Mays. Our guests today, Daniel Kraft and Jonah Gelfand, are the co-founders and editors of Gashmius. Daniel Kraft is a writer, translator, and educator who holds a master's degree from Harvard Divinity School, where he was a resident at the Harvard Center for the Study of World Religions. He's taught at conferences, synagogues, and museums in North America and Poland, and his work has been supported by residencies, fellowships, and scholarships from a variety of important institutions. His poems, essays, and translations appear in various publications, and he shares translations of Yiddish poetry in his newsletter, danielcraft.substack.com. Jonah Gelfand has a master's degree in Jewish studies from the Graduate Theological Union, where his research focused on neo-Hasidic leadership. He is currently studying at the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies in Israel. We know that this is going to be a very important and thought-provoking conversation, so let's get right into it. Daniel Kraft, Jonah Gelfand, welcome to Judaism Unbound. It's so great to have you. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Thanks for having us. 
Okay, so there's this thing that Gashmius exists to advance. There's this there's this idea that it was so important to you that you wanted to make a whole magazine about it. And I want to really tease out, I guess it has to be three meanings from progressive neo-Hasidism. So I think we have to start in reverse order. If you could give us just sort of a quick sense of Hasidism, neo-Hasidism, and progressive neo-Hasidism, how do we how do we understand what that means? And And then I guess I should have said at the beginning, I mean, what this is about is not to advance it in some hyper-intellectual sense for the academy. You're trying to get this into the hands of regular people. What would it look like for regular people to have access to this thing, progressive neo-Hasidism? Starting from Hasidism, Hasidism is essentially a populist Jewish mystical movement that originated in 18th century in what's now Ukraine. So this guy, the Baal Shem Tov, is sort of mythologically understood to be the founder of this Hasidic movement, which in a lot of important ways sought to take the teachings of Jewish mysticism and take them out of the elite academies and restore them to your average Jewish person, to people who didn't have access to kind of traditional education. And in some ways, that actually leads really well into this next part of your question, what is neo-Hasidism? Because we see ourselves and we see the neo-Hasidic project as a continuation of that democratic impulse, right? Just as we understand the Baal Shem Tov, this 18th century Ukrainian rabbi, to have been someone who sought to take these esoteric mystical teachings and make them accessible and actionable for average people. That's what we see as the neo-Hasidic project as well, taking these esoteric mystical teachings from the Hasidic movement and beyond and finding ways to make them accessible, meaningful, actionable for everybody. An additional component of neo-Hasidism is that a lot of it has to do with the academy and scholarship. And a lot of neo-Hasidic writers and thinkers have done that from a place of working through an academic institution or a Jewish institution that's that's highly academic. So when you think of neo-Hasidic leaders, you think of people like uh, Martin Buber, who was writing in German for the the West and for, for German speakers, not just Jews. He was writing Hasidic stories. And you think of people like Hillel Zeitlin, who was one of the first people, I believe, to use a term close to what we use now of neo-Hasidism in, in Hebrew. And he was writing in Yiddish and Hebrew for Jews. But they were both writing kind of, I don't know if I want to say ivory tower, but then it comes over to the to the US and in the post-war period, there's an explosion of neo-Hasidic, uh, I'm saying explosion for me, uh, a lot of what I read has to do with it for the general population, maybe not so much, but uh, uh, an explosion of people writing about this, people like Zalman Shakhtar Shalomi, who starts the renewal movement, Art Green, who who teaches in a lot of different institutions, writes a lot, and started the rabbinical school at, at Hebrew College. They're writing from a very academic place. Zalman less so, but Art and a lot of the other neo-Hasidic writers are writing from a very academic place. We're trying to like push past that. Danny uh, and I both have academic backgrounds and academic interests. But when I go to explain to friends what neo-Hasidism is, I can't send them a 60-page article talking about the intricacies of some deep mystical insight, and yet I think it would be meaningful to them. Neo-Hasidism for both of us was an entry point back into tradition after having either left or not even giving um, the entree. And 
that's kind of what Gashmius we're hoping is coming to do to help people have that entry point. And can we talk about the progressive adjective about it too? Yeah, definitely. Progressive is such a loaded and in certain ways meaningless term. It means a dozen different things to a dozen different people. As we understand it, I would say, and you know, to be clear, none of none of what we're saying here is like an official Gashmius stance. But I guess as I would, would understand it, it's part and parcel of the accessibility piece of neo-Hasidism. When we say progressive, what we mean is that, you know, a lot of the classical Hasidic world is defined by hierarchical and conservative social and theological structures. And what we're trying to do is jettison some of those structures and some of their hierarchies and some of the bounds that they enforce on what is and isn't acceptable conversation and questioning and practice and identity in order to open the tent and the teachings of Hasidism as widely as possible so that as many people as possible from all kinds of different backgrounds and identities can find them meaningful and so that as many questions and concerns and issues as possible can find a place within Hasidic wisdom and find a way to be in conversation with Hasidic teachings. So I would say it's less, you know, like a a political stance, although of course that is political, and more of a statement of an openness, a capaciousness that we think Hasidic tradition has the capacity to hold marginalized and fractured and all kinds of different identities and perspectives. So first off, I started for a long time saying a joke about what neo-Hasidism is, which is it's Hasidism that would be practiced by Neo, the character from The Matrix. And that started as a joke. And then I was like, maybe that's not a joke. Maybe that's actually kind of true for Mm. like people who like The Matrix. Like, I'll let you think that through. But um, I want to start by saying, like, I'm a neo-Hasid. It's not something that I roll around as my first identifier. It's not in, like, bios that I write of myself. But, like, part of who I am is that I am a neo-Hasid. I do take that seriously, both the neo and the Hasid. The way that a lot of Jewish communal stuff has functioned, like, you know, there's the, the movements like Jewish Renewal or even Hebrew College that, like, are kind of explicitly neo-Hasidic. But if you're not in specifically those, then there's like, okay, so I'm going to whatever Jewish space and there's like a smattering of a couple people that might be into Zalman Shakhtar Shalomi's teaching or really love Shefa Gold's chant. Shefa Gold, from my perspective, is another really incredible neo-Hasidic teacher. But it's not, there hasn't been a galvanizing mechanism, a publication and anything that's public facing. Because I don't really consider... Jewish renewal, totally public facing or Hebrew college, like they're, they're designed to like train people to be rabbis or to have certain kinds of conferences. But I, I want to note another piece where we're, we're in terminology zone today, I guess, but I, I like you're called Gashmius, which is a really cool name. We often struggle with Hebrew named organizations, but if you're going to name something a Hebrew name, Gashmius, it's kind of like calling an organization Traif, like unkosher or the, the, by the way, we, there's a podcast called Traif that makes me think of that. It's, it, there's a way in which it's like, we're going to call ourselves something that you actually disparage because Gashmius is part of a duality where there's Gashmius, which is usually translated as like physical material things. And the other side of that is Ruchanius, spirituality. Like if we were going to try to find a term within Jewish tradition dating back at least a few hundred years that we would translate as spirituality, 
I think Ruchanius is the closest, and and it doesn't even go back that far. It goes back basically a few hundred years in the way you described. Gashmius, in certain traditional contexts, that's like the thing you go, uh, feh. It's Gashmius. It's things that are just material versus things that tie us to the transcendent God, Ruchanius. So I kind of wanted to hear like what the story was behind that name and whether there was an element of like, yo, we're going to feature deep dives into stuff you think of as trivial, as just, oh, that's, you know, that's small talk. That's nothingness. We're going to find the depth in that because that's Gashmius. Yeah, Gashmius. That's a great question. So Gashmius came about, I feel like to answer that question, I, I, I wanted to take a step back and just talk a little bit about um, the process of being exposed to neo-Hasidism and Hasidism. And I was in grad school, I was studying, and I had all these teachers uh, who were neo-Hasidic or I don't know what, whatever they would call themselves, writing about Hasidism. They didn't have places to put their own thoughts. Unless you're writing about a specific Rebbe and, and, and his biography or, or his theology, your own personal theology, there was no place to publish that. Danny and I actually met at, if we're talking about digital Judaism, Danny and I have never met in person. We met on a Zoom room Amazing. in a neo-Hasidic uh, summer yeshiva at Romamu, which is a synagogue in New York City, and they were having a summer program. After that, I ended up posting, and there's a great Facebook group, I will plug it right now, called Ask the Neo-Hasidic Base Medrash, uh, Ask the Neo-Hasidic Study Room. It's a Facebook group. But I posted on that and I said, why is there not, or is there, and I'm just missing it, some sort of neo-Hasidic publication? And I got a bunch of responses that there was something that Zalman started in the 70s or this thing in the 80s, but it never really lasted. And I got a bunch of responses that were like, because you haven't started it yet, because that's the kind of community that neo-Hasidism is. So I was like, all right. Danny then messaged me and was like, hey man, I would be really interested in doing something like this. So in that process, it was us really sitting with like, what do we want this to be? Why do we want it to be neo-Hasidic? Why do we want it to be a publication? Why do we want it to be progressive? Who do we want it to be bringing in? Who do we want it to be talking to? So getting back to your question, Lex, Gashmius is the answer to all of those things. In traditional Jewish texts, like you said, Gashmius is kind of used disparagingly. It's used to talk about like, oh, like that yeshiva, like their accommodations, it's like very Gashmius, you know, it's like, they have like AC or whatever, you know, like they have like a very mundane kind of existence. They get good food or whatever it is. It's it's this kind of quasi-ascetic idea that you have to pull away from the world in order to be spiritual. The scholars talk about like two kinds. I mean, to create a binary like that is always complicated, but generally two kinds of mysticisms, which is this worldly and otherworldly. So otherworldly is like pulling yourself away from from the world and, and and transcending it and meditating into oblivion and whatever. You see the dude like meditating and levitating on a mountaintop or whatever. That's the image people get when they think of spirituality. To eat and drink and dance and sing, that's not spiritual. The Hasidim come as a corrective to that, or at least what I see as a corrective, and they come, they teach an idea called Avodah Bagashmius. Avodah Bagashmius is the idea that, no, it is not about pulling away from the world, but it's specifically about leading into the world and that's where holiness is found so there's a kabbalistic idea that with the creation of the world god couldn't contain god's light and these shards of holiness exploded into the world and everything contains with it within it a spark of holiness if you look on the first edition of gashmius david seidenberg's piece really speaks to that and so i'll give that a plug and i won't explain it too much further but everything contains within it a spark of holiness and the hasidim say it's specifically through engaging with those things 
that we can uplift them to holiness. So that's why you see chassidim and it's, it's not about, you know, pulling away from the world. It's about saying l'chaim, drinking, dancing, singing, um, kind of doing a dance right now. That's avdav agashmius. And that for me, coming from a lot of other spiritual traditions that were more quasi-ascetic, was a corrective. It was very, very helpful for me. So that's gashmius in the spiritual sense. But it has the other component, a funny kind of wink, that it's like, okay, what does it mean to, to think of the world as Avadab Gashmius? What does it mean to think of, of my work in the world as related to Gashmius? It's specifically about not turning away from the world. And we see that as also a uh, moral imperative. We see that as related to our progressivism. So Avadab Gashmius is not just a way to understand my spirituality. It's not just to legitimize the fact that I want to have like take a shot of whiskey. It's not just what it is. It's also why you go to the protest. It's also why you buy ethical chocolate. You know what I mean? Like down to the smallest thing. It's it's a moral imperative in how to act in the world. And so when we were coming up with a name, Gashmius was perfect because it's our favorite thing about Hasidic spirituality and it informs our progressivism. You hinted at questions of audience. Like who are the communities you're trying to pull together? I mean, I I don't know. I look at your authors and... It's awesome. Like many cool people that we've had on the podcast are already folks that you've published, but they're not people that I would have like placed next to each other always. You know, Jericho Vincent in your first issue doing incredible, incredible stuff in the world. Um, we had as a teacher in the Anyashiva did an amazing class looking at books of the prophets through a queer lens. David Seidenberg is a leading scholar of Kabbalah and ecology, like Jewish mysticism connected to ecological thinking. Lady Salomon is one of the leaders of Svara, engaging deeply with Talmud and one of your authors and somebody that we've had on the show. Like, you're connected to folks um, exploring psychedelics and the place of psychedelics in Jewish life. Like, a really cool smattering of folks from different corners of Jewish life who do share something, but once again, who haven't had a, a bonding agent that mm. has brought them to like one volume because you I mean you release volumes so like talk to us a little uh, like I might have missed some some networks of people you're trying to reach too like who are the groups that you're trying to I'm gonna say reach but that actually isn't really the right verb like who do you want to be reading this but also who do you want to be writing in this like who are you trying to bring together not just as readers who engage with like your thing that you're doing but also as co-creators together yeah, it's it's another phenomenal question. And I would even expand your synopsis of the diversity of our writers and artists. We have poets, Yehoshua November, who's Hasidic. He's a Lubavitcher Hasid. We have another poet, Aviyah Kushner, who's a translator and writer and is not really thought of in this kind of Jewish spirituality or academic Jewish studies world. And I think what that points to is, who do we want the audience for this to be? And who do we want our co-creators to be? Well, anybody and everybody who might find Jewish mysticism meaningful and who is open to a more progressive community, more diverse community around Jewish mysticism than orthodoxy generally allows for. And I know that's a really, really broad thing to say. Um, but I think we really mean that. We don't expect that people who are a part of this will subscribe to all of the principles that we hold dear, but 
we envision this as a resource for anybody who might appreciate this approach to spirituality in their lives. And, you know, I'll add to that. I grew up in a Jewish community, suburban Baltimore, a lot of Jews, went to day school, had a pretty standard kind of suburban American Jewish upbringing. But my most fundamental and formative Jewish experiences have been in places like Oklahoma and Memphis, Tennessee, places outside of, I don't know, the kind of normal Jewish institutional and educational infrastructure. For me, at least, that's a really explicit guiding part of this project. I lived in Boston for two years, learned a lot from people there, but I found myself often thinking, well, what about the folks in Oklahoma at the shul where I worked? How can they have access to the same stuff that I'm learning you know, from people affiliated with Hebrew College here in Boston? And I think it's actually a failure of a lot of these Jewish institutions and communities that they have made very little effort to expand their audience to places like Oklahoma. I'm using Oklahoma as a stand-in because it was a formative Jewish community for me. And so I think for me, at least in an explicit, explicit way, I want our audience to be people who are outside of places like New York and Boston and LA and Chicago, but who are hungry for um, engagement with Jewish mystical texts and traditions and don't know how to find it and don't have access to it. So if I'm understanding correctly, right now, Gashmius as, as an entity, meaning not the idea of Gashmius, but the organization of Gashmius is basically uh, what I would call an online magazine. I'm curious if you have thoughts on what you dream of as an organization or as an effect of your organization that is really, uh, what's the right way to say, Gashmi, that is practical, that what in your mind, because actually I, I feel a lot of resonance to this because I think that maybe with a different, slightly different purpose or maybe the same purpose on some spiritual level, Judaism Unbound exists to do some of the same kinds of things that you're talking about, which is that we've always been trying to get a new way of thinking about Judaism out into the world for consideration by regular people in Oklahoma and all those other places. And they would start naturally doing new things with that set of ideas. What exactly those new things would be? We've never tried to say that we know that. The idea is that we think that part of why this area is not developing as rapidly as it could be is because, like we've all been talking about, it's restricted to a kind of elite, and that's not where the inventions are going to come from. So it's totally okay with me if you say, we don't know, we just want to get this stuff out there. But I'm curious whether there are things that you've already been thinking about and imagining, yeah, this is what it would actually look like on the ground to live as a Jew in America if progressive neo-Hasidism was more in the province of the everyday Jew. Yeah. Um, when Danny and I started sitting down to talk about this, we had big ideas. And we still, we still have all these ideas of, we're hoping we're very much at the beginning of this project. And it still feels like that. We're what is this project? What are we putting out into the world? Who are we asking to write? What topics are they writing on? And to what end? Yeah, to, to what end is, is a great question. The reason that we felt the, the call to do this is because we're passionate about it. You know, we, we want to provide a place where people can, can put their writings down, but the actual making of the website, the actual the logistics of it, we're willing to put in that work right now. Thank God we have the time and the ability. So we're trying to put that into the world so that people can can find it. We're not just publishing. 
we're also putting together resources. We put on, what do we call it? Like a starter pack for, for neo-Hasidism with videos and lectures because most people, or a lot of people, I happen to be like drawn to, to text and, and book, but not everyone is. So, so we, we have um, resource sheets for each holiday we're starting to put out. We put out one for the last holiday and the upcoming ones we'll be working on. And the second part of, of your question, Dan, around what would it look like to live this in the world? What would it look like for this to be accessible to more people? What Art Green has said about his work, he's been doing this for the past 50 years. He did not start a movement. He's the first to admit that, that he, he did not start a movement, but he put out the materials to, for someone else to start a movement. That's how he talks about it. He translated the texts, put out contemporary theology. He put out academic work to better understand Hasidism. We're kind of seeing ourselves as picking up that and, and running with it to provide more entry points into Hasidic texts. Also on our website, we have uh, how to read Hasidic texts, like How To by Ariel Mays, an amazing scholar and teacher. If that sounds exciting, you'll hear from Ariel Mays next week on Judaism Unbound. And he talks really step-by-step, step, how, how does one read a Hasidic text? And then we link to Hasidic text so you can read. And I'm kind of talking around your question. What does it mean to actually live this? What does it mean to live in the world as a neo-Hasid? That's kind of what we want this project to be figuring out because no one's really given it to you. One of the parts of neo-Hasidism that differentiates it from Hasidism is it's not really willing to tell you what to do. It's not really willing to say you should follow halacha. It's not really willing to say uh, you shouldn't follow halacha. <laughs> it's not really willing to halacha say... Halacha being you... traditional Jewish law. Yes, yeah. yes. Thank you. Some people say you should do it. Some people say you shouldn't do it. Most people just tell you what they think about it, but don't give you prescriptions. Uh, Neo-Hasidism has been, for the most part in the last 100 years, descriptive, but not really prescriptive. It's hard to build a movement off of something that's descriptive. Our project is still describing things, which is both a bug and a... What is it called? Like a bug and a... And a feature. And a feature. Yeah, thank you. Um, I think that's part of the fruitful tension that is neo-Hasidism. And we're not... Like, Lex, before you asked about, like, uh, was Gashmius, like, aligned to being, like, trafe, you know, like, putting out this thing that's that's in your face, uh, or not in your face, but but supposed to catch the eye because it's kind of like, whoa, Hasidism is radical, neo-Hasidism is radical. Part of the project that we're interested in engaging with is showing what traditional religiosity has to offer for non-currently religious Jews. What would it be like to engage with traditional text study? What would it be like? to wake up in the morning and say the prayer moda ani that's traditionally said first thing in the morning and then put on a prayer shawl and fill in the uh, phylacteries. <laughs> you um, cannot translate it because phylacteries <laughs> means nothing. Um, the leather you know, mechanism that is wrapped around one's arm and put on one's head. Yeah. Right. So, so like, what would it be like to engage with these traditional forms? I didn't grow up with any of this stuff. I grew up in like, a very engaged reform household. I became bar mitzvah at 13. I, everyone else in my grade dropped out and I continued through high school kicking and screaming because my mom made me and thank God she did. But the only entry point back for me was the reframe of traditional religiosity through the lens of Hasidism. I think that has a lot to offer the world. One of the things that I've been thinking about lately is just a collapsing of the binaries between religious and secular categories. We spend so much of our time and so much general American cultural discourse around religion based around these very clear distinctions between what is secular and what is religious. And you see this a lot in Jewish communities, right? 
oh, I am religious. So I put on tefillin every day and I observe all of the strict laws of Shabbat versus I am not religious. So I'm not the kind of person who would ever put on tefillin. I am religious. So I find this thing that happened to me meaningful in a grand kind of transcendent way, or I am not religious. So it's just a thing that happened and there's no deeper meaning to it. I would love to see, and I would love for Gashmi's to be a part of pushing people past that kind of distinction. I would love for people to find more playfulness and a spirit of experiment around Jewish practices. So I would love for people to be able to say, oh, am I religious? Am I secular? I don't know. I put on tefillin this morning because I wanted to experiment with whether it would feel meaningful to me and take away some of the burden of having to make the decision about this is a practice I follow or it is not a practice I follow. How do I daven in the morning, right? That is, how do I pray? If I am a praying person and I'm not, quote unquote, orthodox, what does that actually look like in practice and how do I understand it? I would love to create a forum for that so that people can find their own ways to experiment with this stuff. Um, often Hasidic teachers use you know, parables or stories in order to get their messages across. So one story from my own life that has become a really helpful and guiding metaphor for me. Um, so my grandfather had a very conflicted, ambivalent relationship to traditional Jewish religion. He had a kind of traumatic upbringing in a lot of ways and was raised largely by his grandfather, who was very, very orthodox. When his grandfather died, he said Kaddish, the traditional mourner's prayer for his grandfather, for the traditional prescribed amount of time that you would say it for, for a parent. And then when he was done with that, he took his talus and tefillin and he threw them in the trash. And I said to him one time, like, you know, why did you have to throw them in the trash? You couldn't have just put them in the back of the closet or given them to somebody. And he had this real kind of anti-religious streak. And he it was very important for him to assimilate into American culture. And he saw letting go of these Jewish religious forms as a way of doing that. So he just said, I didn't need those anymore. So I threw them away. It was just very adamant. It just They were a relic of the past. They weren't necessary. And in a metaphorical sense, I think that what we're trying to do with this project is take the tefillin back out of the trash, find a way to put them on again, to reclaim these aspects of Jewish religious thought and practice that for a lot of secular-ish Jewish Americans, our parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, whatever, discarded. That discarding isn't fixed. How do I want to say that? When our ancestors got rid of these aspects of their Jewish religiosity, that wasn't an irrevocable thing. We have the power and the opportunity now to take what they got rid of, pull it out of that figurative trash can, put it back on, see how it feels. And that's, I think, what we want to enable for people. You know, one of the trade-offs of Jewish modernity was getting rid of a lot of this so-called irrational, strange stuff, which is the cool stuff, the mystical stuff. And Jews did that for all kinds of good reasons, because they wanted freedom, economic opportunity. But it's time now to take some of that back, some of the stuff that was jettisoned. We can, and I think we, in some ways, must actually reclaim it and find ways to bring it into our, into our lives. 
So I'm really fascinated by that story about the tefillin because where I thought you were going was someplace different, which was, huh, your grandfather, who was anti-religious, said Kaddish for the prescribed amount of time, which is a long time. It's almost a year. Like, that's significant. So that's really interesting, right? That somebody who actively dislikes religious ritual to the point that they, at the conclusion of this, will throw it in the trash, did in fact do a religious ritual for almost a year in honor of, I mean, my understanding of this as best as I can understand it is because his grandfather would have wanted that. That's not nothing. So like, I, I'm, I'm interested in that uh, as, a start, as a starting point. But like, the tefillin piece is really exciting, mostly because I don't rap tefillin. But there are some reasons for that, and I'm open to the framework you gave of experimentation moving forward. But what I'm realizing I haven't done is, huh, what if I was, what if I ditched all the rules about how you're quote unquote supposed to wrap it or where you're supposed to wrap it? Like, I actually do like the notion that I would physically wrap myself in connection to the rest of humanity, to the rest of the world, to my conception of the oneness of all creation. I don't like the thing of, oh, there's this many, there's, you know, seven times you wrap it on your arm and then it goes in your fingers in this way to make this shape. And if you don't do that, people will tell you it's wrong. And then there's things about which specific texture in it. Also, it's made of leather. I don't know how I feel about that. And the vegetarian and me, like, but if it was just like, huh, once a week or once a month for a year, I'm going to wrap myself in something. One week, it's going to be my leg. I'm going to be like, what happens if I wrap to fill in around my leg? Is that, a, is that an interesting spiritual experience? I don't know. I've never done it. Is, is that different from the arm? Is it the same from the arm? That excites me. And that, to me, gets at the experimentation word that you used. And I want to bring that up because I think for a lot of people, when they hear wrapping to fill in or not wrapping to fill in, it's about do they do it the traditional way? And if you're about like reviving that practice, it's about reviving it in the traditional way. So I wanted to hear if that lands on you, if like part of what you're hoping to learn, discern from people is the ways they experiment that aren't aligned with the tradition. And the other piece I wanted to mention is that tefillin is an example of a deep Jewish ritual that isn't about text. Now, you could say there's there's literal texts in it, but I don't think most people are like doing a textual thing when they wrap their body in a certain way. What your website says very explicitly, even as you publish written words, is we're engaging with art and we have we have artists that are part of our team. And with every article we release, there's going to be art that's part of it. And you even have on your resources page a specific, and one of you alluded to this, you have a, a way of engaging like a, like a, I don't know, a playlist, a set of things that are not texts so that people can engage that way. So I kind of wanted to hear about the power of art in your publication. That's a lot of stuff, but basically experimentation with ritual and art. How do you engage with those? In terms of your pointing out my grandfather putting on tefillin for almost a year when he did not believe in it, that to me is a really meaningful example of the collapsing of this distinction between religious and secular that I'm talking about. Even if it's not an example that I necessarily would follow in my own life, people have all kinds of reasons for taking on traditional religious practices and traditional religious ways of thinking. And very rarely, actually, in my experience, do those reasons have exclusively or even mostly to do with religious belief. 
And so that's something that I want to reclaim. And I, I find that example really meaningful because of how it forces me not to think about putting on tefillin as something you do because you believe in any kind of orthodox way. But to your point about ritual experimentation, for several years, I was the director of education at conservative synagogues. And I used to say, I don't actually care if my students put tefillin on, but I care that they understand why people do put tefillin on, have a sense of the range of reasons for that, and so they can make the decision for themselves. And I think that's what we're trying to enable people to do more broadly. To the point about art, so what does art have to do with this project, and what does it have to do with Judaism in general? I, that's a that's a question that's actually really important to me. I think that so much of the way that I think about neo-Hasidism and what I want this project to give people access to is finding ways to be contradictory and have that be okay. I don't have to choose between being religious and secular. I can live within the tensions of the contradictions between those two stances. Language and words and texts are a hard place to carve out room for contradiction. But I think that in art and poetry, there's an avenue for people to express the religious contradictions and tensions of their life in a much more visceral way than something like an essay or a Devar Torah allows for. So one of the ways that I've come to think about this is that art enables us to express and access the contradictory aspects of our Jewish lives and experiences in ways that other forms can't make room for. There's one thing that I feel like keeps coming up, and I, and I want to make really clear where we stand on this, which is we keep using the like the, the phrase, like not in an orthodox way, keeps coming up. And I want to make very clear that like we, when we say progressive neo-Hasidism, are not talking about how religious you, how I'm air quoting, how religious you are or what you do and don't do. We're specifically talking about your disposition towards texts, your disposition towards tradition. So you can be a fully observant, halachic, engaging with all the different minutiae of Jewish law and, and be part of our project. And there are people who publish with us who are that. Or you could be totally not engaged at all or engage in a unique putting to fill in on your leg kind of way and be part of the project. We want part of this project to be a, a cross-pollination between worlds like that. Neo-Hasidism one of the reasons why it's important is because it's specifically not a, a movement or denominational thing. You open up a reform sitter now, a reform prayer book now, and you'll see Rabbi Nachman of Breslov quoted in the corner. They don't call that neo-Hasidism, but we do. That is a non-Hasidic person mm-hmm. engaging with Hasidic practices. On the other side, someone like Ariel Mays, he's an Orthodox Jew. He engages it with it through a neo-Hasidic lens and he published with us. That's part of our project as well. So I want to make it clear that we're not disparaging anyone's practice. Where we would push back against is when the use of religion and or the use of neo-Hasidism becomes harmful to other people or or racist, homophobic, sexist, violent. There are manifestations of this impulse that we strongly disagree with. And it would be untrue to say that those aren't representations of manifestations of neo-Hasidism, because they are. The other thing that I wanted to say was, I, I'm, I've been trying to remember which Rebbe said this, which Hasidic teacher said this, but he talked about not having, and I'll define these terms. He talked about his Hasidim devotees, students, 
uh, not developing from kite, but fresh kite, I think is what he said. But the point being from kite being from is like, I'm, I'm a from religious Jew. I daven three I, I pray three times a day. I do all the things like I'm supposed to do. That's being from. He was teaching his chassidim fresh kite. Someone's going to comment on this and, and, and say what the quote actually was. So please do. Um, For centuries, but, uh, Hasidim have rewritten and retold stories in slightly <laughs> different ways. You're in a long True. lineage, even if you don't True. do it, quote unquote, right. Good, good. Thank God. Ruch Hashem. But uh, the point being that it's not about what the Hasidim came to do in the 18th century was to push back against rote religious practice, doing these things just because that's what you're, quote unquote, supposed to do. Hasidim understand mitzvah uh, to, to stem from the Aramaic root savta which means connection. They're all opportunities to connect with God. They are not commandments in the Hebrew. Which is the, the Hebrew. Is, yeah, is, is command. They, they say, yes, and what it really stems from, the Hasidim are known for like radical reinterpretations and very creative, to put it um, nicely, interpretations of texts. And they say, no, this is about connecting to God. So laying to fill in as an example, we're using this, it, it always comes up as the example because it's such a good, like there's no reason, there's no rational reason to do that. There are certain mitzvahs where you're like, oh, I kind of get why someone might do that. There's literally no reason to do tefillin unless you're trying to like engage with a religious practice. Just doing that because that's how you do that, or that's what you know your family has always done. Um, I'm not saying it's good or bad, but I'm saying that's not necessarily the project that we're engaged with. We're not trying to get people to put on tefillin. We're not out in the corners asking if you're Jewish. We are out in the corners asking if you want to do a mitzvah though. You know, I, I think that is actually part of our project. I'm alluding to Chabad here. Um, Chabad was integral to my connection to Hasidism, Neo-Hasidism, and there's complicated things there, and we can talk about that. But Chabad, what they do, which I think I would like to pick up and I'd like to see more people pick up, is a shift from halacha to doing mitzvahs, which is to say, you know, I grew up in a community where mitzvah meant good deed. Mitzvah means commandment. Mitzvah means like, or connection, as I said earlier, but, but the idea of like doing a mitzvah, like, oh, I'm going to light these candles because that's what I'm doing a mitzvah. That wasn't something I grew up with. So now anytime I do a mitzvah, I think of it as like a, like a plus one rather than if I was raised or thought of it in terms of engaging with halacha as a matrix of different systems of religious praxis, then if I don't do something, that's a minus. I think that not just the reform movement, but, but most denominations right now, up through Orthodox, don't present people with the opportunity to make informed decisions. This is how we do things in our movement. Our interest is giving people back the opportunity to have informed decision-making. For us, that's specifically around mystical reasons for engaging with tradition. And then you can read it or listen to it or watch the video or, or look at the art and be like, okay, word, I'm actually not interested. But you should be able to make that decision yourself, not just because that's what your parents did or that's what the people around you are doing. I really want to thank you for bringing the teaching that uh, mitzvah, the word mitzvah might come, I mean, not might, but, you know, but because it doesn't, but I mean, reinterpreted to understand that the word mitzvah comes from the Aramaic tafta or connection, because that actually gives me access to the idea of mitzvah in a way that I really haven't had before. And I'm really grateful for having this conversation so that I might find a way to use the word mitzvah in a way that does work for me or potentially works for me. That's great. That's that's a plus one. It's definitely a plus one. <laughs> so you just did a mitzvah. But I want to uh, in both in both ways. But I want to actually pursue some of the conceptual ideas a little bit further, 
both the idea of what ends up sort of counting as mitzvahs in the world of neo-Hasidism or the world that we might imagine of neo-Hasidism. And then also, but before we get there, I want to talk a little bit about the fundamental piece of language that you use, which actually is the only one that in any way makes me say when I read it, is this for me? Maybe this isn't for me because it's not progressive. I don't have a problem with that. For me, it's God-obsessed. And what's interesting is that I am not alienated by that language per se. And actually, I had a conversation not too long ago with a dear friend who was talking about how she's basically God obsessed. I don't know if she used that exact language, but said, all I ever am doing is is about God. And I said, huh, it's really almost nothing that I'm doing is about God. So I said, what do you mean by that? And she explained what she meant by God and everything she's doing for God. And I said, oh, that's exactly what I do. That's exactly what I believe. I just don't call that God. And what's interesting is actually there's a book that just came out recently, which I talk about obsessed. I'm, I'm really obsessed with this book. It's called The Creative Act by Rick Rubin, who is a music producer, but kind of a spiritual master. And he uses the word source rather than God, or whether he means the same thing, I don't know exactly, but he's using this word source, and I find that not at all problematic. And so the question becomes, for me, I think when we are trying to make these older ideas or these traditional ideas accessible to the common person, and maybe I'm the the stand-in for the common person for a moment, that it really is hard for me to hear the word God because I have a set of assumptions that are just built in. And really, I've tried for many, many years to remove them. I can't. That for me, God is a being with a will. And I don't believe in that. And then when I talk to most people who are mystics, they say, yeah, I totally, that's not what God is. I totally don't believe in that God. So then it becomes a hard concept to use because I, on the one hand, I understand that the people who have been doing this in an academic and in a lead in a Beit Midrash in a, in a traditional kind of setting have a much more sophisticated idea of God. And sure, it would be wonderful if we could pass that along to the people, but I think it's also really hard. So the question for me is, what do we do with that? A lot of us all agree that we're talking about the same thing, or at least to some large extent we are. And I see the value of using God language in part because a lot of the traditional sources use God language and we want to connect to those and everything. But I guess I also wonder if there's another possibility, if there's another way. I think for me, part of this work of reclamation involves reclaiming God language and not pretending that it's more comfortable than it is. I also, for a long time, especially, you know, I mean, growing up and as a teenager and in my earlier 20s, God language was totally alienating for me, an immediate turnoff. That's less true for me now because I've done more kind of both conceptual and embodied work thinking about different different ways that that's a metaphor. But I think if we throw out God language too completely, we risk Uh, letting go of a really vital core of this tradition. But is there an alternative, I think you said? I want to say, yes, there's a million alternatives, and we want Gashmias to be a place where those can be played with and explored. So if people find it more meaningful to refer to God as source, spirit, truth, 
justice, compassion, love. And incidentally, for me personally, the vocabulary around love, especially, really is kind of like a visceral turnoff. I should probably go to therapy to explore that. <laughs> but, um, you know, I would love for people to find more ways to experiment with the language around this in order to get into this kind of playful spirit that doesn't have to commit to one stance, but can just kind of see what works. I don't know. The, the God stuff is really complicated, in part because we're in America and our discourse around God and religion is so dominated by a certain vision of Christianity. It's hard to separate Jewish God talk from things that we've maybe implicitly or subconsciously inherited from Christian cultural discourse around us. And so that's another thing that I hope that this project can be a way of articulating a Jewish God discourse that is not secretly indebted to Christian conversations that are in the American ether. The conversation around God is, uh, <laughs> I'm just laughing because I'm like coming in like so confident, like as if I actually know anything about this topic, <laughs> but like the conversation around using God language, how about that, is something that I, yeah, it's a constant struggle. There's a, a line that I heard from Rabbi David Ingber, um, who's a neo-Hasidic rabbi at Romamu in, in New York City, and he, he calls it post-traumatic God disorder. I also want to say that Hasidic sources particularly really play with that. They really present an opportunity to work with that language because half of them, it'll be like, oh, God is this amorphous thing that you experience in Devekut, in this like divine cleaving to, to God in, in this mystical state. God is in everything. God is everything. And then the next sentence, they'll talk about God, the father who loves you and you're the child of, of God. So it's, it's an opportunity to like know and play with myth and metaphor and truth, uppercase T and reality, like what is real, what is not real. And the last thing I'll say on it is that God as a stand-in for, for whatever we're actually talking about, you know, God, the word G-O-D comes from the Norse uh, mythology and it's, it has nothing to do with our religion. So, so it's a, it's a stand-in, but when we talked about who this was for, we kind of had two groups in mind. One is like those religious folks who need an entry point into the spiritual stuff because they're in, they're just wrote, you know, whatever, or the religious folks who need an entry point into the progressive world because their communities are not as um, open to that. But the other side is what I call, and, and I hope this is a, this is like a silly joke, but what I call like my Jewish current Jewish friends who are like <laughs> Jewish current Jews, who they read Jewish currents which is great. Love Jewish Currents. Jewish Currents um, being kind of a leftist Jewish magazine. Yeah. Um, so so that's their religious, that's their Jewish engagement. And and, they, and we talk about them wanting more than that, but they don't have an entry point because they go into shul, they don't, they go into synagogue or temple and they don't know what's going on because they, they don't have those tools yet. Um, or they go to read a text and there's so much baggage needed, you know, to jump into a Hasidic text, you need to have some context. They're, they're constantly pulling from different parts of Tanakh, from different parts of the Bible. It, it's hard to just sit down for the first time and, and read a Jewish spiritual text, unlike other traditions where you can like sit and watch your breath or something like that. But I talked to them and, and they want an entry point. They want some sort of religious engagement and they don't know how to get it. And so that was the other point of entry for the Jewish current Jews to have an entry point into, into religiosity, um, into spirituality. 
into the way that that might actually intersect with their progressivism already. We want to provide an entree for people who don't only want to use Jewish practice as a political tool. It can be a political tool, and I think it's a good political tool. But I want to provide those people who are who are using Jewish practice as a way to congregate, a way to gather, a political organizing tool. And it should be used as that. I'm not saying it shouldn't, but also to afterwards go maybe pray together. We want it to be God-obsessed. We want it to be specifically religious because there's not that many other places doing that. One of the amazing things about this kind of neo-Hasidic project is that we don't have to start from scratch in rethinking our vocabulary for God, the way we talk about God. We have an incredible tradition to draw on that's actually, in a lot of ways, much more radical and daring and experimental than a lot of what I see coming out of radical theologians today. So medieval Jewish mysticism refers in many places to God as a nursing mother. It refers to God's breasts emanating this divine milk that we can access as spiritual energy, if you will. It refers to God as endless light and all kinds of things. We can return to the sources and actually find the radical God language and, and radicalism in general that is latent within them. Um, and so I think that's one of the really powerful things that a neo-Hasidic approach to Jewish tradition offers. I guess the, just the other side of that coin is, for me, the the idea of mitzvah, not the language, because you've helped me with the language of mitzvah. I guess given that you've helped me with the language of mitzvah, I should be a little more open to the possibility that you've helped me with the language of God. But conceptually, with the idea of, okay, once we understand that there is an idea of God or source or the oneness or whatever that we're trying to get closer to and get a connection with in that tzavta idea of mitzvah, the question then becomes to me, how do we think about, how do neo-Hasidim think about, how do you think about whether the world of mitzvahs that one can do is limited to the world of mitzvahs that have already existed? And we may not have to do all of them. We may do some of them with different intentions or different ideas, but that ultimately it's the traditional mitzvahs themselves that have a certain spiritual power. But I guess I'm also wondering what it looks like that maybe in a future neo-Hasidic Judaism that was the province of the everyday Jews, one of the things that people would be working on in the world would be the creation of new mitzvahs that stem out of a new orientation towards the way in which these ideas intersect with the world. And maybe it was things that the older rabbis of, of previous generations just didn't really have access to. And we all know how much our world has changed, how much the everyday person has changed. So it would almost feel weird if the result of all this is to say, those of us who are alive today should be able to have access to the tradition to to understand it in a new way and to have access to it in a new way, as opposed to sort of inviting us to be major contributors to the substance of the tradition. Because of course, in the way that it, every major change in the makeup of Judaism has happened, there's been a kind of an expansion of the creative class from priests to rabbis and now maybe to everybody. But that's not just that those are the people that would be doing things. Maybe those are the people who might be seen as the creators of the next version. So that would get me very excited. I'm curious how that lands on you. 
This question about what the boundaries of mitzvahs are is really interesting to me. And I've come to think that it's actually, in certain ways, unanswerable. And I'll say what I mean by that, because we're talking about it right now. So we're putting the question and the top of the question into the realm of concepts and intellectual ideas. But that's not what a mitzvah is. A mitzvah is an embodied activity. And so I actually think there's some confusion because a mitzvah isn't theology. A mitzvah is something you do with your mind and your body together. And so I think that an answer to the question such as we can find can actually only be developed through the activity of doing mitzvot and playing in the ways that we've been talking about in this conversation to bring in a very different tradition. There's a staying in certain schools of Zen Buddhism that you can't wash out blood with blood, which I understand to mean you can't solve a problem or answer a question with the things that created the problem or the question in the first place. You have to turn to something else. And so I think one of the things that Gashmias is about, and this is part of why we chose this name that's centered on physicality, is that we want to take it out of the realm of these intellectual conversations and put it back into what are you actually doing? How does it feel in your body? Where does that take you? There's a teaching from Rabbi, Na- Rabbi Nachman of Bratislav, who was an important Hasidic figure. He was the great-grandson of the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of Hasidic Judaism. And he said once to his disciples, he said, you misunderstand me. You think that I want you to be no good, upright, decent, respectable people. No, I want you to be wild animals howling in the forest at night. And so that's what this whole project is about to me. In some ways, that's an encapsulation of it, really. So rather than thinking intellectually in reasoned ways about, oh, what's a mitzvah? What's God? What's Torah? Et cetera, et cetera. How do we go out as wild animals and howl our answers to that question and live them in these kinds of new embodied ways um, that take us out of the bounds of respectability even. And there's danger to that. Don't get me wrong. But it's a really exciting opportunity. What an amazing note to end on. Thank you so much to both of you for joining us, for bringing your Torah and your mitzvahs and uh, allowing our listeners to engage with it too. Thanks so much. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thanks so much for having us. This Thank has been you. great. This, yeah, this was wonderful. Thanks for the invite. And thanks so much to all of you out there for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation and we hope that you'll tune in again in the future. Reminder that we have just a couple more episodes in this spirituality series. We are almost done with it, which we're sad about, but also you can go back and listen to any episodes you missed in our spirituality series just by heading to our judaismunbound.com slash podcast page and seeing all of our recent episodes. So go to those. They have been so, so fun. We've got a couple more coming to you the next few weeks. The last thing we want to say is the same thing we say at the end of every episode. Please, please, always be in touch with us. We really appreciate your questions, your thoughts, your ideas, your visions, your grand dreams for the Jewish future. All of that is awesome. And here are the different ways that you can be in touch with us. You can head to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages. All of those are at Judaism Unbound for our handles. You can head to our website, JudaismUnbound.com, where you can check out the show notes for this episode and all of our others. And last but not least, you can always email us at Dan at JudaismUnbound.com and or Lex at JudaismUnbound.com. The last request we like to make is that we deeply appreciate any amount of financial donation that you're able to send our way. 
which you can do on either a monthly recurring basis or just as a one-time gift via judaismunbound.com slash donate. So thanks so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound. <laughs>